the penetrating words of Carl Menninger uh, from his provocative little book that he wrote in 1973, Whatever Became of Sin. They hang prophets or ignore them, which hurts worse. We have typically described the Bible as a library of 66 books. And when you enter into that library, there are two branches, if you will. One contains books of the Old Testament. The other contains books in the New Testament. And if you enter the Old Testament branch, we have kind of typically said there are four wings in that branch of the library. The first wing are the five, first five books of the Old Testament that we often refer to as the books of law, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. The next week we call the historical section where we have 12 uh, books of history where God records the history of ancient Israel. The next wing uh, we sometimes refer to as the wisdom poetry section. And then the final section actually has two, two wings, the prophetic section, and we call that section the major prophets and the minor prophets. And I think sometimes because they're referred to as minor prophets, those 12 books, the messages from those 12 men are often neglected. But minor does not refer to the unimportance of their words. It simply means their books are shorter than books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. So when we think about the minor prophets, they are not minor at all when it comes to relevance, when it comes to matters of importance. So why should we study the minor prophets? Well, let me give you three reasons. First of all, they're inspired. They were written by men, inspired by God, moved by the Spirit of God to proclaim His Word to His people. Secondly, most of the minor prophets are quoted in the New Testament. And so the New Testament writers understood their importance, understood their relevance to the audience that they initially spoke to and wrote. And then finally, and, and perhaps most importantly for us, they remain relevant we might characterize the message of both the minor prophets and the major prophets in this way. First of all, there of course is an element of a predictive nature, and usually when we think of prophecy, we think of the future. We think of these men foretelling something. And usually they speak of impending judgment or future deliverance. And the prof prophetic messages always conclude with words of hope for God's people in the future. What we sometimes forget, 
that really the majority of the message from these prophets is not so much foretelling as forthtelling. It's not just predictive, but it's proclamation, where they speak to God's people about their sin. And there is this consistent call for repentance. Well, previously, I believe it was in November of 2018, we studied together the minor prophet Jonah. This morning, I want to begin a new study from the book of Micah. So if you brought an Old Testament this, this morning, find the book of Micah. And by the way, if you didn't bring your Old Testament this morning, repent and bring it next time. Right? Okay. Look at chapter 1 and verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Well, right here in the very first verse of his book, we learn several things about Micah the man. First of all, he was from Moresheth. Moresheth was a small village in Judah, about 20 to 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So he was not a city boy. He was from the country. And so he was called by God to go to Jerusalem and to speak to the people primarily of uh, Judah. We see that his name means, Who is like the Lord? It is a sentence name. This name does two things. It reveals the essence of his parents' faith, but it also heralds the prophet's message. In fact, when we get to chapter 7 at the end of this series, he will ask that question that his name signifies. Who is like the Lord? And so... Uh, this would suggest that one of the dominant themes, one of the primary messages of Micah, he is answering this question, who is like the Lord? And as I mentioned, even though he spoke primarily to Judah, we'll see here in just a minute, he also addressed the northern kingdom as well. The fact that he prophesied during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, allow us to kind of put a time frame on his prophetic ministry. He would have spoken from 739 B.C. to about 686 B.C. And so it's easy now to kind of go back in the message, the book itself, and see the historical circumstances surrounding God's word to his people. His contemporaries would include Isaiah and Hosea. Micah would have been preceded by the prophets Amos and Jonah. And it's interesting that Micah is mentioned in Jeremiah 26 and verse 18. There in that context, uh, some leaders in Jerusalem are actually wanting to put Jeremiah to death because of the boldness and courage this great prophet had in speaking God's words of judgment to his people. And yet another group of leaders rise up and speak on Jeremiah's behalf and say, wait a minute, do you remember Micah the prophet and his courage and his boldness? 
when he rose up and spoke the word of God in a very courageous manner and God's people did not put him to death, but listened and repented. And so Micah was uh, a great man of faith, a prophet held in high regard. So there's a little bit about Micah the man. Now before we return to the text, let me just say something quickly about his message. The message of Micah is primarily concerned with divine judgment against sin. And so that is why I have titled this series An Ancient Ethical Word for a Modern Unethical World. Again, his message is relevant. It applies to our lives and to our world today. As we find ourselves in a society, in a culture, which seems to be turning more and more away from traditional Judeo-Christian values, the Word of God. And so our challenge as God's people to rise above, to live life on a higher plane, to live life as God would have us to live. Micah has often been called the prophet of the poor or the prophet of the oppressed, those too weak uh, to have a voice, those who are on the fringe of society, those who are among the unprivileged and the marginalized. And as we continue through this study, we'll see that Micah condemns a quartet of evildoers speak words of judgment against greedy land grabbers. He will speak words of judgment against corrupt rulers. He will speak words of judgment against false prophets. And he will also speak words of judgment against dishonest priests. So with that brief introduction, let's return to the text... And let's look this morning at verses 2 through 16, or the rest of chapter 1. And we can divide this this section into uh, three parts. The first serves as an an introduction really to the entire uh, prophetic message that we find in this book. In verses 2 through 5, Micah just seems to say, pay attention. Hear you peoples, all of you. Listen, earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgressions, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Micah is trying to grab the attention of his audience. And he uses these three words to capture their attention. Hear, look, listen. And he begins to answer, again, his own name, who is like the Lord. He is a universal God, not just of his people, but of all of his creation. 
God is aware of what's going on in the lives of his people and in his creation. And he's not only aware, but he is involved. He is holy. He is powerful. He will respond to sin. And so he says right off the bat, pay attention. Stop. Look. Listen. Behold is the old word. God is coming. And so the first chapter continues in verses 6 and 7. And we have these brief words to Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom. and represents all of the northern kingdom. And it would appear historically that this announcement of judgment would have occurred just before the Assyrians come into the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. and ultimately carry them off into captivity. Listen to what he says. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes. As the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. You see this uh, description of the northern kingdom's cycle of sin. It begins with what I call the first of three eyes. Ignoring God, which leads to idolatry, which then leads to immorality. Paul picks up on that theme in Romans chapter 1. And so because of their ignoring God, because of their idolatry, because of their immorality, God is sending judgment upon them. And again, of course, we know historically that happens in 722 B.C. But then we get to, chapter, uh, to verse 8 of chapter 1. And in the rest of the chapter, his words now turn specifically to Jerusalem and to the south, to the southern kingdom of Judah. And again, historically, this announcement of judgment appears to have occurred just before 701 B.C. when Sennacherib surrounded Jerusalem, uh, again, of the Assyrians. And Sennacherib had already conquered a number of the neighboring towns and villages. You can read about this in 2 Chronicles uh, 32. We even have Sennacherib's own historical account of how proud he was that here he is in uh, the, the process of uh, getting Jerusalem to surrender. And of course, if you go back, because of the ministry of Micah and the ministry of Isaiah, Jerusalem, Hezekiah repents and the city is spared. Listen to what he says. Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For Samaria's plague is incurable. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. And now Micah begins to, to warn several villages surrounding Jerusalem of impending judgment. And I want to make notice of one thing. Probably in your Bible you have some side notes or some footnotes 
which try to illustrate the wordplay that Micah uses in the Hebrew to dramatize his message. And uh, it doesn't always come out in English. Here's the way it sounds in the NIV. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Beth Ophrah, roll in the dust. Pass by naked and in shame you who live in Shaphir. Those who live in Zanan will not come out. Beth Ezel is in mourning. It no longer protects you. Those who live in Merith writhe in pain, waiting for relief. Because disaster has come from the Lord, even to the gate of Jerusalem. You who live in Lachish, harness fast horses to the chariot. You are where the sin of daughter Zion began, for the transgressions of Israel were found in there in you. Therefore you will give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The town of Akzib will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. I will bring a conqueror against you who live in Marishah. The nobles of Israel will flee to Adullam. I want to read Eugene Peterson's modern paraphrase of this text because Peterson, I think, does a pretty good job of putting into English, again, the um, very colorful way that Micah writes in Hebrew to make his point to warn these people in these surrounding uh, com communities. There's, there's a wordplay going on here. Don't gossip about this in Telltown. Don't waste your tears. In Dustville, roll in the dust. In Alarm Town, the alarm is sounded. The citizens of Exitburg will never get out alive. Lament, last stand city. There's nothing in you left standing. The villagers of Bittertown... Wait in vain for sweet peace. Harsh judgment has come from God and entered peace city. All you who live in Chariotville, get in your chariots for flight. You led the daughter of Zion into trusting not God, but chariots. Similar sins in Israel also got their start in you. Go ahead and give your goodbye gifts to Goodbyeville. Mirage town beckoned, but disappointed Israel's kings. Inheritance city has lost its inheritance. Glory town has seen its last of glory. So I got to thinking, if Micah were writing, or was writing to inhabitants of our area today, what that might sound like. Behold, you will be reduced to powder and powderly. Take heed. No more facial hair in Beardstown. Fly the coop, Cooper. Judgment is coming. Bitter you have become, O oh, Honeygrove. Be warned. Take that last train from Clarksville. Think, think, think monkeys here. There's Keith Bowman. There's Keith Bowman. Cower, not tower, Paris. So, so this is what Micah is doing, again, to illustrate 
the power of his message, seeking to get God's people to, to repent that he is serious about sin. Judgment awaits. And so as we think about uh, chapter 1 here, let me suggest six points to ponder uh, that, again, as we seek to make this message as relevant as we can to our lives and to our world today. Number one, God does not tolerate any rivals. None. Go back very quickly to uh, the four groups of people that we will see Micah particularly address. Greedy land grabbers are indicative of those who, at any cost, regardless of ethic, is pursuing wealth and find themselves in uh, positions where they can take advantage of people. What about corrupt officials? Those who live and rule in the political world who are caught up in the pursuit of their own power and authority. False prophets might be uh, illustrative, illustrative of those who, who have their own agenda when it comes uh, to their religion, to their way of following God, and, and in our context, Jesus as our Lord. Dishonest priests. Those, again, who are serving in ministry uh, for their own good, according to their own way, seeking their own power and authority and glory rather than pointing men and women uh, to Christ. And so all of those things rival our God. Someone has said that if you really want to know where a person's loyalty is, you look at their appointment book and their checkbook. Where are they spending all their time and where are they spending all their money? All right. and, and so probably a good exercise for all of us to reflect how much time do we spend in reflecting upon God, His Word, and His will for our lives. What, how, do we, how do we spend all of our money? Do, do we think it actually belongs to us? And so to carefully, prayerfully consider, are there any things in our lives we are putting before God? Secondly, and, and this, I think this is true really of, of any book of the Bible, but particularly uh, the prophetic literature in the Old Testament and the book of Revelation in uh, the New Testament, human history is moving toward a goal. God is aware of what is going on. God is involved in his creation. And even though some can accuse the prophets of being nothing but doom and gloom, there is always a message of hope, a message of restoration, a, a promise of renewal. Why? Because God is moving human history to ultimately intervening and initiating in a full way his kingdom. Number three, advantage entails accountability. Or if you like uh, the letter S better than A, special privilege implies special responsibility. 
Israel had been chosen by God and benefited from all the blessings that came with that. But it also entailed a, a, a responsibility unlike others had. And they had somehow missed uh, the message that uh, they were to be a light to Gentiles. They were to be a light to their surrounding world and cultures. And as God's people today, we enjoy all the blessings that come with being in Christ. But with those blessings come some responsibility and some accountability. And so we must not abuse God's blessings. We must not presume upon His grace. Number four, we must have the same resolve as Micah. Go back to verse 8. Were you listening closely to verse 8? Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. Micah wasn't one of these messengers who gloried in his message. He wasn't one who went around saying, you know, these people are going to get what they deserve and I'm glad of it. No, he took this message very personal. He included himself in this message. And it hurt him. And he is in mourning, he is weeping, much as we see Jesus do in his life and ministry for Jerusalem. Uh, much like we see Paul in Romans 9 through 11 uh, wailing and weeping for his people who have rejected Jesus as their Lord. Do we have that same kind of resolve? Remember number three. Advantage entails accountability. Special privilege implies special responsibility. Have the same resolve. And that's, quite frankly, is one of the goals I have for this series, particularly as we move in more and more and apply it to restoring all things from our vision. Two more that are related. This opening oracle implies repentance. Now, think about, again, the northern kingdom versus the southern kingdom. When Jeroboam and uh, the residents of the northern kingdom rebelled against uh, King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, way back earlier in Israel's history, and the northern kingdom became a kingdom unto itself, characterized by unfaithful leaders, false prophets, idolatry, and again, immorality that Micah describes in verses uh, 6, 7, and 8 here. And they didn't repent, and they were not spared. And so the Assyrians come in in 722 B.C. and carry them off into captivity, and things were never the same again in the north. However, the south listened to men like Micah, and Isaiah. And they did cry out to God for deliverance. And they were 
spared in 701 and weren't taken into captivity until a little over 100 years later by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And so the importance of repentance, and finally, number six, it's never too late. Again, go back to 2 Chronicles 34 and read that account of Sennacherib surrounding Jerusalem. His own account, he says, I have Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. And God miraculously spares uh, his people. And so the lesson for us, it's never too late to repent. Repentance, quite honestly, is something we need to do each and every single day. So, to conclude this morning, I think last week I quickly mentioned, take the Micah challenge. Uh, Seven chapters. Today was week one. Read a chapter each day. And so by the time we get through with this series, we will each have read the book of Micah seven times. Powerful message. As you read through, look for three themes. In fact, I have a Bible in my library where where I did this. And uh, three themes. God, grace, and social justice. And so I took three different color pens, and every time I saw a reference to God, I highlighted it. Every time I saw a message of hope from Micah, uh, illustrating God's grace, I would highlight it. And every time I saw a reference to social judges in which, uh, social justice, in which one of these four groups of people who were abusing their power and authority and uh, positions, every time I saw a reference to that, I highlighted it. If nothing else, it makes for a very colorful book of Micah. But you'll see the lessons. They'll, they'll come alive. And so accept that challenge and concentrate on those three themes. One of the uh, secondary source, uh, resources I'm using for this study is a little commentary written by Stephen Dempster. And at the conclusion of his uh, introduction uh, to Micah, he tells a little story about David Hume. Anybody know who David Hume is? Famous atheist from uh, the 17th century in American history. And so the story goes that one morning, Hume left town and he told his friend that he was uh, traveling to another city to hear George Whitfield preach. Whitfield, the famous British evangelist who had come over to the United States in about 1740 and was a part of the Great Awakening. Some of us might remember studying that in an American history course. And so he goes to this city. He hears Whitfield preach. He comes back home and this friend says, Well, are you a believer now? And Hume says, No, I'm not but George Whitfield surely is. Whitfield believed. And so did Micah. The question is, do we? Can we see the relevance of his message and apply it to our own lives and be what Jesus 
calls us to be, and in fact says that we are salt of the earth and the light of the world. If you're subject to the invitation of Jesus, please come now while we stand and sing.